Welcome back. This is number five of the series of podcasts on diet and health. Number one was the introduction. Number two, I talked about diabetes. Number three, we went over the basics of fats and proteins. Number four, we went over the basics of carbohydrates. And now we're finally going to get around to the basics of eating. I'm giving you a condensed version of the book Diet and Health, which of itself is a compilation of five separate books on diet and health. When I went over the separate books, which were of various subjects, I had to almost always include the basics, hence the books all contain similar chapters in some respect. When I combined them all, I didn't have to do that, so the book Diet and Health is much more streamlined. Although I wrote the book as an instructional story, it may be used as a reference book by many of you, which is why I encourage you to go ahead and buy the book. I'm going to use type 2 diabetes as the prototypical metabolic disease. I'm going to say that in general, type 2 diabetes is a result of insulin resistance. So in order to explain that, I have to start off with food, I have to start off with how you eat, and I have to discuss why we developed insulin resistance, which seems to be a problem over the last hundred years as compared to the previous 5,000. I do not believe that throughout the history of man there was a 40% incidence of obesity, prediabetes, and type 2 diabetes. I do believe that this is affected by something in our diet over the last 100 years. By the end of the series, I'm going to believe that a lot of you are going to agree with me. But my goal isn't just to tell you how we got here. What I really want to do is to prevent your developing type 2 diabetes. And I'm going to do that by giving you some guidelines for a common maintenance diet. Along the way, I'll discuss the other types of diabetes. And I'll also discuss the ketogenic diet which at this point, other than fasting, I think is the best fat-losing diet. If you have gotten to the point where you have insulin resistance, and I can't say that all obese people have insulin resistance, but most of them do, then despite my getting you to lose fat through, say, a ketogenic diet, you're going to have to go on a different maintenance diet than someone who has not developed insulin resistance. My plan is to give you enough information so that you could figure this out on your own. Now, I say figure it out on your own, but I am going to give you a few suggestions along the way. And I'm also going to warn you that I'm going to discuss not eating at times. By the end of the series, I think you'll also think that's a good idea. But we're a long way from that. I've... uh, instructed you on the basics of food, which is like teaching you how to do addition and subtraction. Now we're going to go on to eating, which is like the metabolic equivalent of teaching you how to do fractions. There's going to be a lot of these podcasts, but by the end, we'll be doing the metabolic equivalent of solving quantum wave equations. Now that we know what food is, let's get back to what happens when we eat. 
We are going to be concerned mainly with carbohydrates and mainly with glucose and fructose, whether that is in table sugar, fruit, or starch. Later, we'll talk a little bit about high fructose corn syrup, and if I do my job halfway right, it will make an impression on you. First, you put food in your mouth. The first thing that happens is that you taste the food, and if it tastes terrible, you spit it out, which for the most part is a good thing. Terrible tasting food may not be good for you. The taste of food occurs in the brain and is tied to our psychology. Sweet taste is desirable to the brain, and that makes sense since the brain likes glucose. Bitter is a slight warning, but a little is okay. Sour, again a slight warning. Salty is something we can desire under certain circumstances. Umami is a meat-like taste that drives us to protein. In any case, taste is very complex and is really too much to cover in this book, so we're going to move on. Back to glucose. Um, saliva contains an enzyme that can cleave starch molecules into maltose molecules in the mouth. Remember, maltose is two glucose molecules, and this is the way your body handles starch. Maltose is not a sweet fructose. This is a good time to mention the cephalic phase of insulin secretion. It ends up that even thinking about a little food may cause a little insulin to be secreted by the pancreas. And this kind of makes sense. Your body is stingy about glucose, as I've been saying, and so it really doesn't want to waste any and wants to be fully prepared should you accidentally happen to eat some. Thinking about food causes a little insulin secretion, as well as putting food in your mouth, whether that food actually contains glucose or not. Your brain is thinking always better to be fully prepared. So not only does eating encourage insulin secretion, but perhaps even thinking about eating encourages insulin secretion. Nevertheless, certainly eating multiple times a day does increase insulin secretion. And if we think about it and think about modern man, how many times a day do we put food in our mouth? Well, let's see, we have breakfast, we get a coffee break, a lot of people eat lunch, some people eat something around two o'clock, you eat a, a little appetizer before dinner, and you may eat dinner a half hour or so later. Man, maybe we'll have a little snack when we're watching the movie. And so right there, we're actually putting something in the mouth uh, somewhere between four and seven times a day. In the modern world, we have people who are actually working at home. And I can almost guarantee you, people working at home put a little something in their mouth more times than seven times a day. That little something may not be much, but every time you do it, you get a little squirt of insulin. As we go along, you'll understand the significance of that. When we compare this with the diet for the previous 5,000 years of mankind, I just don't believe they carried around food in their pocket and popped some in their mouth every few hours. In fact, I think they probably ate twice a day, sunrise, sunset. Maybe sometimes they put a little something in their pocket if they're going out to the field, or maybe those living in the city had a uh, local hot dog vendor. But overall, I just don't think the common man ate as many times in the previous 5,000 years as we have during the last 100 years. Lunch is actually a relatively modern invention, 
and it became popular with the onset of artificial lighting. This allowed people to work later and made it a little too long from sunrise to sunset so that you ended up having to eat something in the middle of the day because you were working past sunset. Of course, now we can't imagine life without lunch. I'm slowly working up to insulin resistance, and eventually you will understand it is related to the number of times you are exposed to insulin. But not only that, it's also related to the rapidity of the increase of the insulin level. I'll go over more of this later. Anyway, you get a slight rise in insulin when you think about food, a slight rise when you put the food in your mouth, a little bit bigger rise when the food actually hits the stomach. There your body more or less sterilizes the food and gets it ready for digestion. When you're going to expose this food to your digestive enzymes, you want them to be small particles with a large surface area so that your enzymes can attach to these particles and begin their work in separating chemical bonds. So the stomach begins the job of digesting the fat and proteins and, to some extent, the carbohydrates, which really occurs in the small intestine. Sucrose is separated into glucose and fructose, and both are rapidly absorbed by their own respective pathways. It may take a little bit longer to separate the starch into maltose molecules, which are then divided into their own two glucose units, and that really depends on the form of the starch we are eating. If the starch is entangled in a bunch of cellulose, which we know we can't digest very well, it's going to take a little bit longer for those enzymes to get access to the maltose molecules. Nevertheless, your body is remarkably efficient in obtaining energy from food. As I said, it doesn't want to waste any, and especially it doesn't want to leave any on the ground after you're finished with it. Maybe not directly on the ground, but you know what I mean. In any case, the glucose gets rapidly absorbed and is taken by the portal vein to the liver, which then determines what it is you're eating and dumps it into your bloodstream. Now the pancreas realizes that there's actual glucose here, and this is not a false alarm, and here comes the insulin. Normally your body is very good about insulin and can make almost as much as you need. Other than type 1 and type 3 and type 4 diabetes, you have plenty of insulin. Let's go back to the liver for a moment. The liver stores something called glycogen. Uh, glycogen can be thought of something like animal starch. It is a highly branched string of glucose molecules that the liver can break apart one glucose molecule at a time, unlike the starch in the gut. The liver's job is to make sure the brain is happy by keeping the glucose level stable, either by releasing glucose from glycogen or making glucose out of protein. Remember, you have lots of protein, probably even more than fat. The liver is always adding or subtracting from its glycogen supply. Your body is stingy with glucose. Once the plasma glucose level gets around 200 milligrams per deciliter, glucose begins to be lost in the urine, and your body does not like that. So it tries to save the glucose energy. 
and it does this by secreting insulin, which hastens the absorption of glucose by the cells of the body, especially the muscle cells. The higher the plasma sugar, the more insulin is secreted. It also tries to save energy by storing this excess glucose in fat cells. Insulin can promote the absorption of glucose into the fat cell and enhance its conversion to fatty acids, which then is saved as triglycerides, as we talked about earlier. The higher the insulin, the more this process takes place. If you happen to have low insulin, the process goes in the other direction. However, once the glucose is converted to fatty acids by the fat cells, it does not go back to glucose. Fatty acids are released instead. I told you I would talk about glucagon, which is secreted by the alpha cells of the pancreas, which is high when insulin is low, and vice versa, and I will, in a later podcast. High levels of glucose are directly toxic to cells in the body, so if it gets too high, getting rid of it in the urine is the last resort. Your body is going to keep absorbing this glucose as long as you keep eating it, and your pancreas is easily able to keep up with the insulin demand. If you're eating table sugar, every glucose molecule you absorb from that table sugar has a fructose molecule you're also absorbing. The fructose does not stimulate insulin secretion, nor is it used by the cells in the body. And that's not 100% right. The sperm may use a little, the red cells may use a little, but for the most part, Fructose is not a main supplier of energy. That doesn't mean it just uh, hangs around doing nothing. Your body utilizes this fructose in several ways. When your body needs to replenish its glycogen supply, fructose is often the substrate used. Of course, your wonderful liver always has the option of converting fructose into glucose. And as I'll talk about later, and just as glucose is converted into fat, fructose also plays a role in our fat metabolism. In fact, as you will learn later on, it plays a prominent role in our fat metabolism. Okay, let's review what we have so far. You eat sucrose, which is table sugar, and get glucose and just as much fructose. The glucose gets gobbled up by the tissues to be used as energy under the influence of insulin. The fructose gets turned into glucose and made into glycogen by the liver. It also turns a lot of the fructose into fatty acids and hence to triglycerides, just like the fat cells. These triglycerides are not saved in the liver like the fat cells save it in your fat tissue, but are sent into the blood bounded to what are called lipoproteins, the things I mentioned earlier, which then carry them around to be used by the cells throughout the body, along with the glucose-derived fatty acids, which are also being saved in the fat cells. The lipoproteins also carry around cholesterol, a type of fat that is a sterol and is not used directly for energy. I'll have a lot to say about cholesterol later in the book. Okay, so to sum it up, glucose used directly for energy, fructose converted to glycogen, which is a string of glucose molecules, and the leftover converted into fatty acids and triglycerides. Fructose is absorbed one-to-one -one with glucose, and some excess fructose and glucose may pass down the GI tract and 
eventually affect the gut biome. I'll talk more about the gut biome later, but I will give you a hint. If you have type 2 diabetes, your gut biome is not working correctly, and I guess I could say it's screwed up. This is also the time for me to tell you that your brain has a strange relationship with fructose. It does not absorb fructose or use it for energy. But recently we figured out that when your glucose levels get too high, your brain converts glucose into fructose. Now, remember a couple things. Your brain does not need insulin to absorb glucose. Hence, controlling the insulin does not control the absorption of glucose in the brain. Elevated glucose levels can be directly toxic to cells, and it appears that elevated glucose levels over a long period of time really adversely affects your brain. If your glucose levels are elevated, simply lowering the insulin level does not keep the brain from absorbing it. The brain may be protecting itself from the elevated glucose level by converting some of it to fructose. However, you don't want a lot of fructose floating around in your brain either. As I said before, I'm going to talk about advanced glycated end products later. Right now, what you need to know is that you don't want a lot of them floating around. Your body is amazingly complex and we just do not understand it completely. The things I am telling you are what generally happens. In other words, we're speaking about insulin, but insulin also affects many parts of your body and many cells in your body. All I'm doing is confining the discussion to diet and health for the most part. But even then, I'm estimating what has happened. When you eat a protein, it is divided into a smaller protein before it's divided into fatty acids. This smaller protein may have biological actions in and of itself. They in turn may be divided into smaller proteins, which again have actions. Eventually they get to fatty acids which are absorbed, but even some of the smaller proteins may be absorbed without being fully converted into their respective amino acids. In the meantime, some elements in the gut are actually being recombined into different molecules. Your gut biome can perform all sorts of manipulations on molecules, including the generation of some vitamins. Some amount of fermentation occurs in your gut, and as I will discuss in the chapters on bread, fermentation results of many different chemicals being produced, not just the basic alcohol. So you can see the process of digestion is quite complex. I'm simplifying this a great deal, but even the simplification is going to be useful in helping us prevent type 2 diabetes. I don't mind simplifying things because your entire body is extremely com complex with numerous feedback mechanisms that we simplify just so we have a basis for understanding what is happening. In making these podcasts, I'm using my book, Diet and Health, that I'm trying to get you to purchase on Amazon, as a guide to the condensed version, and I'm surprised to discover I can't even get one chapter in a single podcast. I don't know if I'm adding information or talking too slow, but uh, to finish this chapter would require another 20 or 30 minutes, and I really don't want to make podcasts that last that long. 
So this chapter will be finished up in podcast number six. Okay, you can get this podcast in your usual places, or you can get it on kellygreggreggg.com and download it in that manner. In the meantime, uh, you could always go on Amazon and type my name in, and uh, something will show up. There may be a few erotic books show up, but that's not me. That's just a person with the same name that I have.